the WrestleManias. We're your co-hosts. I'm Rich. I'm Tim. This is a special popcorn match edition where we delve into a topic of tangentially, or sometimes not at all, related to WrestleMania. This episode, in honor of Black History Month, we're taking a look at black representation in professional wrestling. We've got some fascinating history to get into, so let's do this. All right, so the impetus for this episode came when we were watching WrestleMania X8 in preparation uh, for our last podcast post, which featured The Rock in a huge match with Hulk Hogan, Jazz in a women's title match, Ron Simmons, a.k.a. Farouk, and Devon Dudley in a tag team championship match, plus uh, Booker T, who has recently arrived from WCW in an undercard match versus Edge, and Maven, who was the winner of Season 1 of Tough Enough in a hardcore championship match. It occurred to us that this was probably the most diverse WrestleMania card we've had to date, so we decided to do a little digging through the first 17 shows to see what we could find. Uh, this is probably a good moment for the disclaimer that we are two white guys, uh, and the intent of this particular episode is to celebrate and help educate about the rich history of African Americans in professional wrestling. The terms colored and Negro are used uh, only in terms of referring to the proper names of championships of the past uh, that many regional promotions had, and obviously do not reflect our own beliefs or language that we would use normally. So let's get into it a little bit and talk uh, just a bit about the history of, of black wrestlers in WrestleManias. As I said, you know, we uh, really noticed with 18 the, the diversity of the card there and thought, well, let's, you know, let's see what these past WrestleManias have looked like. So we went all the way back to number one, uh, looking at just in-ring talent, you know, so that's wrestlers and managers and valets, not necessarily, you know, special guest referees like Muhammad Ali or special guest timekeepers, or of course the musical talent, you know, have Gladys Knight. We've had run DMC and a, and an arranged array of, of talent around the ring, but not necessarily performing uh, wrestling matches. So um, way back at the first WrestleMania, we had special delivery Jones in a big squash match with King Kong Bundy, uh, junkyard dog, of course, with Greg, the hammer Valentine and the, inimitable Mr. T in a main event tag match. Uh, that was the very first one. So we're kind of off to a, a relatively um, good representation, I would say in the first WrestleMania. Yeah, for sure. Just a reminder that Mr. T is not a professional wrestler. Though. <laughs> that Mr. T was a boxer at the time and an actor. Lies. These, these are lies. Mr. T lives in my heart as whatever he wants to be in the moment. So Mr. T actually, you know, popped up again in uh, WrestleMania two, of course, against Rowdy Rowdy Piper in a boxing match. Better befitting his his skill set. WrestleMania three had a couple of great matches. Junkyard Dog versus King Harley Race. And then Butch Reed with uh, manager Slick versus Coco Beware is our first WrestleMania match featuring two black performers or, you know, wrestling against each other. So that's kind of exciting. WrestleMania five, we had uh, slick again as the manager for the twin towers. Um, and I want to just mention WrestleMania five for dishonorable mention for Akeem, the African dream, who was not a black performer, who was a white guy from the South uh, who put on a fake uh, quote unquote African gimmick. Um, it, doesn't translate particularly well um, to watching it today, I would say. Uh, I much prefer, you know, that performer's one-man gang gimmick. Uh, it's, it's more interesting and, and less offensive. And bad dancing. Horrible <laughs> Terrible. dancing. Terrible dancing. I think that was My, his concept of being African, was just ugh, he did dancing. It's, it's the worst. Um, yeah, this kind of like weird jiving thing that he did. It looked like he'd taken too many uh, Benadryls or something. Um, uh, WrestleMania 5 also featured uh, Bad News Brown versus uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. WrestleMania 6 has a somewhat infamous uh, 
promo from Rowdy Roddy Piper, who was facing Bad News Brown, where he performed it in half uh, blackface. Um, it may have been scrubbed from the Peacock by now. It's it wasn't okay in 1980, whatever, and it's it's definitely not okay now. Um, so that one that one is out there on the internet, but not probably on the Peacock these days. WrestleMania 11, actually, so 11 years into this thing, was our first black performer in a singles main event match, and that was. Um, again, not a professional wrestler, a football player, Lawrence Taylor um, versus Bam Bam Bigelow. One of the, I think, stranger main events uh, we've had at a, at a WrestleMania. And it turned out that uh, Lawrence Taylor actually was had some moves, I think, right? Like when we watched that, we thought somebody yeah. had clearly trained that guy. Yeah, he jumped from the second rope and stuff. And he did like a bulldog on, on Bam Bam Bigelow. And Bam Bam did a great job of making Lawrence Taylor look good and make him look like Lawrence Taylor knew what he was doing. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was more uh, entertaining than expected. Absolutely, I think we both were sort of pleasantly surprised when we watched that match. Um, and of course, LT showed up with a uh, a cadre of of professional football players on his corner um, for that match. So, no no intimidation factor there at all. WrestleMania 13, uh, we had Rocky Maivia, you know, the first gimmick for Dwayne The Rock Johnson, of course, uh, versus The Sultan. Uh, that match also featured an appearance by The Rock's father, Rocky Johnson, so that's kind of notable here. Uh, Ahmed Johnson, who was the first black intercontinental champion for the WWF, was with the Legion of Doom versus the Nation of Domination. Of course, Farouk, Ron Simmons, D'Lo Brown, and uh, manager Clarence Mason and we're, you know, we think the Nation of Domination was probably um, the first sort of black stable um, for WWF. And that, you know, when they arrive and the variety of performers they bring with them uh, is when, you know, we sort of really up start to up the diversity factor for uh, for our WrestleManias. Uh, and I'm just going to skip ahead to WrestleMania 18, which we already mentioned is, a, is an especially diverse card. And we just posted a podcast episode about that. And so... So take a listen, check it out. Uh, and that's how we got to the next section on black wrestlers in history. We thought after recapping just black wrestlers at the first 18 WrestleManias that we've watched, that it would be fun to start poking around at the history of African-American wrestlers and learning some amazing facts about them. First one that we thought we would talk about is Vero Small. Uh, Vero Small is known as the first black professional collar and elbow wrestler back in the 1800s. When I say professional, I mean by he earned his living by doing so. So there may have been other black wrestlers at the time and such, but he was the one that was actually making the money, paying his rent with uh, wrestling. So he was born in 1854 or so. They're not exactly sure because he was born into enslavement in uh, Buford, South Carolina. And he was freed uh, slash abandoned by the 13th Amendment. Uh, so the first known match that he was in was against a guy named Mike Horrigan in 1881. And he was a well-known wrestler of the time in Vermont. He was a well-known collar and elbow wrestling uh, champion and such. And collar and elbow wrestling was a type of grappling wrestling that was really famous with Irish immigrants and the lower classes in New England. Mike was known as one of the best. And after his first match with Mike, Horrigan decided to take him in and train him. And that's at that point when um, Vero Small took the name of Black Sam of Vermont. And he ended up having an amazing career. And before, though, he was kind of a troublemaker or thought to be. He actually escaped from prison when he had been arrested for burglary. He was arrested, found guilty, sent to prison. 
and escaped. It was a brand new prison in Vermont. And so they think there might have been uh, some security loopholes that they missed uh, when constructing it. And him and a bunch of other convicts had taken advantage of it. Now, there's also belief that he was not involved in the burglary whatsoever and was just arrested because of the color of his skin. So he was one of the fighters in rotation at the famous Bastille of the Bowery Tavern in New York. He had won the Vermont Collar and Elbow Championship, and uh, which had made him possibly the very first uh, wrestling champion of African descent in America. And so once he had won that and his name started spreading, he went down into New York and took a job at the Bastille de Bowery uh, fighting other collar and elbow fighters in New York City. And at one point, he had a no contest match with another wrestler named Billy McCallum. And this pissed Billy off. And uh, Billy, (laughs) while uh, Vera was sleeping, snuck into his apartment and shot him in the neck. Holy crap. And somehow uh, Vera survived that and was back wrestling within three months. Man, this guy sounds Um, like a total badass. Yeah, he was hardcore. Um, (laughs) Suck it, hardcore championship. Yeah, so after all of that, um, he ended up joining uh, John Clark's troop of wrestlers from Philadelphia. And what's interesting about John Clark is, as opposed to being the establishment owner um, and hiring wrestlers to come in and fight and having taken a share of the purse and stuff, John Clark was more of like Vince McMahon or uh, Tony Khan, where he signs a series of wrestlers into a troupe and they fight each other and they travel around fighting each other, kind of like a circus or like modern day wrestling. Oh, wow. It was very innovative for the time. And so his last recorded match was in 1885 and he basically disappears into obscurity. He does show up in the 1910 census records for New York City as a wage earner uh, loading trucks. And after that, there's no more record of him. Um, So it's believed he probably died between 1910 and 1920. Um, They have no idea where his grave is. Oh, wow. What a fascinating guy. What What a life, man. Yeah, it's quite amazing to go from slavery to his name in the newspaper. Yeah. And if you want to know more about this guy, there is a interesting like 18 minute documentary about him called uh, Black Sam Statue uh, by Elliot Marquis. It's free to watch on uh, Vimeo, probably on YouTube, too. Um, I highly recommend checking that out. Mm. That's where a lot of this information came from. That's great. I'm glad you were able to, to dig that up and learn a little bit about uh about Mr. Small. I mean, so I guess it's getting shot in the neck. I mean, that's like go away heat, right? Like that's somebody, somebody doesn't really want you to be around anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's taking kayfabe a little too far (laughs) in my opinion. If Stone Cold maybe had a, you know, had six more months uh, in the attitude era, he probably would have worked that into a, into an angle. Yeah. So the next guy we thought we would look into was Reginald Seeky. So this isn't the Reginald Seeky that's still alive in Toronto running a karaoke bar and stuff that, was a professional wrestler as well. But this is the original Reginald Seeky. His original name was Reginald Barry, and he was born in 1899. And he is recognized as the first world-colored heavyweight champion in 1924, and he held that title for 11 years. Good Lord. He was only allowed to compete against other non-white wrestlers, um, which pissed him off. And so he was said goodbye and took off for Europe. So that in Europe, where, you know, they're a little bit less racist, allowed him to fight against white wrestlers. 
Um, and that's when he really started making the money, obviously. And while he lived in Prague, he converted to Islam and took the name of Kamal Abdel Rahman, but he still wrestled under the name Reginald Siki. Huh. And in 1942, he was captured by Nazis and was interned in the uh, Titmonig Castle uh, for being American. He was considered an American political prisoner and not like a prisoner of war or like concentration camp uh, persecution kind of guy. So they did receive regular Red Cross supplements. And he went on record in an interview saying that if it hadn't been for the Red Cross drops that they were able to steal from the Nazis because the Nazis were taking the supplies for themselves, that they would have most likely died. Oh, wow. And he was released in 1944 in a prisoner exchange. And at that time, he returned to the United States. Obviously, um, you want to get the hell out of Europe at that point. <laughs> and so he came back and went immediately to Los Angeles and started wrestling in the Coliseum in Los Angeles, being one of their headliners and packing the houses. Easily crowds of ten to 20,000 people would come to see him. And he actually jobbed to a young, curious, um, young, curious, <laughs> curious George, a young, <laughs> a young, gorgeous George in uh, 1947. And then just a year later, he died. Wow, man. He died relatively young. Another crazy story, crazy life. You imagine leaving the U.S. because it's too racist. And you're, you're like, oh, Europe will be better. Oh, Nazis. Yeah. Right. Just He couldn't, he couldn't uh, dodge it. But while in Europe, he made a ton of money and was packing arenas and outdoor venues all across the continent from England to Greece. And he was easily drawing 20,000, 30,000 people uh, just to come see him in main event against like the local champion and stuff like that. So that's very cool. He definitely, he definitely was a draw. Um, so the third guy we thought we would talk about, uh, and he's a more familiar name, and that is Bobo Brazil. Yes. Um, so Bobo was born in 1924 uh, as Houston Harris, which personally I thought was already an awesome wrestling name. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's pretty. It's a pretty good name, but I guess Bobo Brazil is, um, I would imagine, carries more of the ethnic persuasion that promoters would want at the time. So his initial name was supposed to be Boo Boo Brazil. Oh, no. But a ring announcer mispronounced it and said bobo therefore he became bobo that's better right yeah thank um, god for that yeah yeah it's a little easier to take yeah so he is known as like the jackie robinson of professional wrestling for breaking the color barrier but that was mostly because he was so good promoters couldn't ignore the money draw that he was and so they they were like eh, segregation whatever he makes me money put him in the ring with the white guys it'll be awesome wow. so and before he was a wrestler he actually played in the negro leagues in michigan so he's also was a mentor to rocky johnson as we mentioned him earlier and to joe frazier he held many regional titles but never a world title and um he was involved in a very controversial moment of where in a match with buddy rogers for the nwa title buddy rogers suffered a groin hit and couldn't continue the match and so they had named bobo the champion and but he refused the belt because he had won by a groin hit injury and he didn't like that hmm. um, but then it was determined that buddy rogers had faked the injury and so they tried to award bobo the title for that but then the nwa refused to recognize bobo as the champion wow so i'm sure there was some politics and stuff like that going on in the background is that a uh, is that a dusty finish that's uh it sounds it that's pretty convoluted <laughs> yeah yeah 
Um, So he was also the last WWA World Heavyweight Champion. And when they merged with the NWA, he fought Gene Kaniski to a draw. And it was supposed to be a unification match. And at that point, the NWA determined that Kaniski was the true champion and deactivated the WWA Championship instead of uniting them. Oh, wow. And in a moment of parody, in 1993, he fought his last match. So that's 40 years after his first match. And he fought it against Kelly Kaniski, Gene Kaniski's son. Damn, that's quite a stretch. Yeah, to have that kind of that kind of a stay in, uh, in professional wrestling and in the time period that he did it in was quite impressive. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I, yeah so I definitely heard the name Bobo Brazil uh, before, and I knew sort of roughly when he was around, but it's really cool to learn some of the details of his uh, of his story and then his his sort of title history there. All right, that's, uh, this is awesome. Thanks for uh, digging up those three guys and, and uh, sort of helping fill us in on their, on their stories. So I know that, um, you know, we had noted that many territories kept their wrestlers uh, segregated and sometimes even established, you know, quote unquote, Negro championships, uh, the world colored heavyweight uh, as, as one of our guys held. Um, so most of those seem to be uh, a gimmick more than a kind of legit bracket. And there seems to be very few records of, or continuity of titles with, with black wrestlers. So Vero Small, Reginald Siki, and Bobo Brazil are just three of a long list of important figures. We could easily have talked about men like Bearcat Wright, Tiger Conway Sr., Rufus Jones, Ray Candy, uh, and many more. And that's even before we get to, you know, Arnie Ladd, Hacksaw Bush Reed, Junkyard Dog, and of course those who followed in their footsteps. If you're interested in hearing more of this kind of thing, you know, these profiles, drop us a line at WrestleManiaBlog at gmail.com or tweet us at WrestleManiaPod on Twitter if there's somebody that you'd like to uh, us for to dig into and, and talk a little bit about on the podcast. We, we'd be happy to do it. This, this stuff has been fascinating, honestly, to read and, uh, and learn. Yeah, so now that we covered some of the early names and some of the real pioneers of professional wrestling, uh, we thought we would talk about some of the firsts, the first uh, black champions and stuff like that. And I think it's important to note to pay attention to how recent some of these dates are. So I thought we would just start off right away with uh, Bearcat Wright. Yes. And Bearcat Wright was is considered to be the first black professional wrestler to hold a world heavyweight title. In 1963, he defeated classy Freddie Blassie. And it's interesting to note that was just five days before MLK's I Have a Dream speech. Hmm. Bearcat was an interesting character. Um, once he got the title, he didn't want to give it up. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, so he, was, he had won the WWA World Heavyweight title, and he refused to turn it back over to Freddie Blassie or to Edouard Carpentier, the flying Frenchman. Uh-huh. Uh, so they ended up bringing in a shoot wrestler that was proficient in judo, and that's when Wright... Uh, refused to get in the ring with him. And so that's when uh, the WWA just stripped him of the belt and gave it to the flying Frenchman, Edouard Carpentier. Wow. That story is crazy. We were talking a little bit about that and trying to imagine sort of a similar scenario where somebody just has a belt and says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to hang on to this and I'm not even going to get in the ring with your, with your challenger. Uh, it's, it's, right. it's crazy. And, um, it's, and it's because like Bearcat Wright was so big. He was such a big guy and he was extremely yeah. nimble with uh drop kicks and stuff and so it was kind of like imagining like if like brock lesnar would not turn over the title what do you do who do you get to fight him to force yeah. him to give it up <laughs> yeah, right who's gonna take it 
Yeah, do yourself a favor and Google Bearcat Wright and look at the pictures of this guy. He's a pure specimen. He's super impressive. So that was 1963. The next one that we wanted to talk about actually was the first WWF Intercontinental Champion, which was Ahmed Johnson uh, in 1996. So um, quite a span there before we get to no more champions. I mean, we had to get to the Attitude Era before we had... Right an intercontinental champion that was black. Yeah. And of course I met Johnson, you know, in recent years has been pretty vocal about some of the, you know, the racism he experienced, you know, kind of behind the scenes at, at WWF at the time. And uh, sort of the way that, you know, he felt his, his particular career was, was stymied because of, because of the color of his skin. So. Yeah. Which is surprising because he seems to have like all the attributes that Vince McMahon loves. It's like seriously muscle bound, ripped athletic. He was huge. And had character, but yeah, he just talked to, yeah, he just couldn't get anywhere, which was kind of surprising. And then suddenly yeah. he just kind of disappeared. And so that brings us to the first black WWF tag champions. And though that was uh, Soul Patrol, Rocky <laughs> Johnson and Tony Atlas in 1983. So that does seem kind of far away, but the shocking thing is that the next black team of champions was men on a mission in 1994 when they possibly won the championship by accident um <laughs> it's believed that like mabel fell on top of the one guy in the quebecers and he couldn't get up he couldn't kick out of the pen and they had no choice but to count the three and call the match as a win for men on a mission wow um, yeah he was he was huge it was, there's was no uh no squirming out from under that guy no mabel was also the first black king of the ring um I don't, was he Mabel or Viscera at the time? I can't remember. Uh, he was um, still Mabel. Okay. Yeah, that was 1995. And then the first black women's champ in WWF was Jacqueline in 1998. Wow. And the first to main event a WWF pay-per-view uh, is Junkyard Dog against the Macho Man back in 1985 at the Wrestling Classic. It was the very first pay-per-view that he did after WrestleMania. Um, they're kind of like, hey, this this made some money. Let's do this again. We've just been watching this one in preparation to do a little special episode, a special non-WrestleMania episode on the Wrestling Classic. It's a fantastic show. Um, Junkyard Dog is all over it through the tournament. Uh, so we're super excited to talk about that in a little bit and record that for y'all. Yeah, and ignore what uh, some of those haters on the internet seem to say about that show. That show was amazing, and it's well worth sitting down and watching. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe when we do the episode, we can read some of those reviews and try to figure out what's wrong with those people. I just, I just yeah. think they're just lacking joy in general. So then that brings us to the first WCW champion, and that was Ron Simmons. And... This was in 1992, and it's kind of confusing because we had mentioned that Bobo Brazil had won the NWA championship and that the WCW's direct lineage to NWA, you would think Bobo Brazil would be, but he's not. Um, the NWA did not recognize Bobo Brazil as a champion. So Ron Simmons was also the first black NWA champion, technically. Wow. All right, and then the last one that we wanted to hit was the first WWF World Champion uh, is The Rock in 1998. So as, as Rich mentioned, quite a, a great history, but also of much shorter history than probably should have been given the long-standing presence uh, and contributions of, of Black wrestlers. All right, you want to talk a little bit about some of our, some of our favorites? Um, we I think we've each picked our, our top three. Yeah, so we can go through my top three. Sure. My top three actually starts off with a tag team, so I technically have top four, I guess. 
my top three starts off with Booker T and Stevie Ray uh, in Harlem Heat. Yes. Harlem Heat were amazing. They were incredibly talented. They had a great amount of uh, ring chemistry, which makes sense since they were real life brothers. They were 10 time tag team champions in WCW. Man. And even though they showed up in WCW in 1993, the original plan for their storyline was that they were to be introduced as wrestling slaves oh, that Lordy. Colonel Parker had won in a poker game. But luckily, the WCW management was like, that's a little too far. <laughs> it is 1993. So instead, they made him from Harlem, mm-hmm. which. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys were unstoppable uh, as a tag team. I'm a big fan as well. Yeah, lots of people put them up there. Uh, like, if you had to name the best WCW tag teams, you would just ping pong between Harlem Heat and the Steiner Brothers. Yeah. So, the uh, my next my next choice was uh, the Junkyard Dog. A lot of this is just based off of his charisma, mm-hmm. and uh, some of his ring antics were amazing. And then that theme song that he had in the early 80s, uh, Grab Them Cakes. <laughs> Let's just look at a, at a lyric here or so. And when you get yourself started, it's hard to stop. You just go for your partners, you know what, and then you grab them cakes. <laughs> The only reason why I could think of this being a theme song for him is that, like, the second verse starts off with, Ow! Come on, dog. Uh, Talking to your mama. Living his shirt off living color. What? Yeah, I know. I know. Those those words don't make sense in that particular order, but that's okay. So apparently in the late 70s and early 80s, cakes was a uh, slang term for a women's pair of butt cheeks. Mm-hmm. I got it. I think it might have been coined by James Brown, actually. He had a song uh, involving uh, cakes at that point in time. <laughs> yeah, that's that song slaps. Like, I, I would I would listen to that in my car. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, Junkyard Dog was a smooth talker, and I really loved him on that Hulk Hogan's <laughs> yes. Rock and Wrestling cartoon. Yeah. I loved his character, but IMDb revealed to me that he did not voice himself on that show. Oh, that's disappointing. I know, but he was actually voiced by James Avery. Uncle Phil. Who was Uncle Phil. <laughs> yeah, Uncle Phil was his voice. And um, and while I was there poking around, I learned that Brad Garrett was the voice of Hulk Hogan. Oh, man. And David Arquette's dad, Louis Arquette, was the voice of Superfly Jimmy Snooker. <laughs> so many shocking discoveries for IMDb. I know. Well, that, that explains know, why so. Junkyard Dog was always throwing jazz out of the house on, uh, on rock and wrestling. You know, yeah, it all, yeah. all kind of comes together now. I have um, I had JYD on my list as well, so I won't go into it. But I, yeah. I think I, you know, I loved him for all the same reasons that you do. I actually just ordered the book yeah. um, King of New Orleans, which is his biography, and he had, of course, a sort of fascinating history as working primarily in the in the South, which you know at the time that that he did it is was super racist place to be, and you, but much like. Uh, maybe Bobo Brazil and or other guys, his talent and his ability to draw money just led him to get booked anywhere and everywhere because they knew that people would show up to watch him. His WrestleMania performances that we've seen haven't been his best stuff, I would say. I mean, they're you know they're certainly decent matches and all that stuff, but they're not the they're not the JYD that you know that I really remember. My mom was a big JYD fan too. She got a kick out of him whenever he he came on the TV. And then, like, my final one is uh, Bobby Lashley. I, I don't know how you can't be a fan of this guy. He's a unit. Like, he is ripped. He is a, he is a perfect specimen of a human yeah. being. 
like if they did a remake of twins today, <laughs> he would be Arnold Schwarzenegger's yeah. character. I think. Could Kevin Hart um, play Danny DeVito's character? That would be amazing. I think we need to immediately offer this idea up to the world. I would watch the shit out of that movie. Ask for a producer yeah. credit and uh, sit on our big pile of cash after that. Yeah, that would be great. But he's he's so cool, too, when he's in the ring. And he's the he's he's really the dominant black wrestler that WWE has been missing for pretty much its entire existence. They've never really had like this big muscle bound monster of a guy that could just destroy people in the ring. And so in my opinion, uh, he's money and he's extremely fun to watch. Yeah. Bobby's great. And of course he's a, he's a shooter too, right? He's got legitimate wrestling um, cred NCAA, I think champion um, as well as MMA uh, fighter with a with a solid record he's one of those guys actually when i see him i'm like you're, you're done lifting weights like you've lifted all of the weights like there's no more muscles for you to add to your yeah. muscles you can, <laughs> you can just put them down now like maybe just just have a smoothie or something so all right those, those that's a great uh top three rich i think uh like i said i had jyd on my list as well so i won't you know reiterate some of that stuff but um he gets a lot of credit as a trailblazer that's maybe maybe not as deserved as it should be, you know, given again, the history going back, um, you know, decades before him, but he was a trailblazer in the sense that he was the big black draw for WWF at the time when WWF was getting to be about as big as it would ever be. Um, and so I think that gave him exposure in a way that a lot of the, you know, the earlier guys didn't, didn't quite have. So, um, another one on my list was um, Ron Simmons, uh, Farouk, of course, the Acolytes, um, a variety of other gimmicks over the years. He was a, a professional football player, of course, before he became a professional wrestler. You know, he started out working for Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW in the mid 80s. Uh, and then, of course, comes over to, to WWF in the in the uh, mid to late 90s with uh, the Nation of Domination and, and then the Accolade Protection Agency with uh, JBL with Bradshaw. And, you know, we've talked a little bit in the last couple of WrestleMania episodes about watching him in the ring. He's just he's such a badass. He's I think, you know, a legitimate tough guy. He looks tough as hell. Uh, he can he could talk. He makes other guys look good, which I think is, is really underappreciated for his approach. Uh, just a guy that I really never get tired of, of watching. Yeah, he had great facials. Like if you wanted he if you wanted to see what angry looks like. <laughs> You look at Ron Simmons at almost any time. I, he should do those. Uh, you know, they have those cards for like aspiring actors and stuff with the different emotions, you know, where you're trying to sort of get the, the facials right. He, he could totally be the angry. Um, so Ron Simmons is one. And then the third one um, for me was Bad News Brown, a.k.a. Bad News Allen. We saw in a handful of WrestleManias as as Bad News Brown. He's another guy who was a, a legit tough guy. He was a serious judo practitioner. He was actually the first African-American to win a bronze medal in, in Olympic judo. He won in 1976 at the Summer Olympics in Montreal. There are a lot of great stories about him on the road, uh, just, just sort of known for being being a lot of fun and also like i said a legitimate badass and he's got that kind of tough style in the ring sort of very no nonsense very kind of just knocked down um in your face um, but it was fascinating to me to learn that he had such a serious martial arts background for real yeah that's fascinating i didn't know that yeah. about him and but it makes sense when you watch his ring work that he was very good at takedowns yeah. and holds and like really working guys over yeah, cool guy for sure some some of you definitely didn't want to piss off because he uh, he could shoot on you right which makes sense that like 
his match against Piper was pretty good just because it was like such a conflict of styles. Like Piper was more of a boxer striker uh-huh. kind of guy. And, and bad news Brown was kind of a grappler. And so it made it for a really interesting yeah. match. All right. Well, I think that's about it. I think maybe we'll wrap up here, but I want to, you know, thank obviously everybody for joining us for the special popcorn match edition of all the WrestleManias and honor black history month. I hope you'll join us again soon at all the WrestleManias.podbean.com. You can also find us at all the WrestleManias.wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter at, at WrestleMania pod or drop us an email at WrestleMania blog at gmail.com. As I said, these popcorn matches are a chance for us to kind of dive into things that are not quite uh, WrestleMania related. Um, and so if there are topics like that, you know, if you want to hear more about black history and wrestling, we'd be happy to dig into it a little bit more. So, you know, drop us a note, shoot us a, a Twitter doodad, a tweet. I don't know what the kids say. Um, and we'll, you know, we're, we're looking for any excuse, honestly, to do this again. Is that a TikTok? I, I think so. Tick, is that one of I the, think ticker it's the ticker talkers? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> oh my God, we're so old. It's fine. So if you, uh, you know, if you heard some, something here that you like, you know, take a few minutes, read about one of these guys. Rich recommended a video. It's easy enough to Google, folks. Um, uh, there's a rich history. This is just the very tip of the stories out there. Well, for now, this is Rich and Tim, and we're signing off for all the WrestleManias. Have a great one.